Hey, welcome to Genre Exposure, a film podcast. Join us as we explore the wide world of cinema, broaden our horizons one movie at a time. I'm one of your hosts, Dustin, and as usual, I'm here with Michael. Hello there. And Jason. Hey, everyone. What's up, guys? How you doing? Doing good. I'm pooped, man, but I'm happy to be here talking about movies. Hey, nothing's more exciting than talking about movies. Nothing. It's better than sex. <laughs> Whoa, this is a weird intro already. Uh, well, listen, Michael. It depends on the movie, and it depends on the sex. <laughs> listen, That's very true. There's two kinds of people in this world. Those with loaded guns, and those who dig. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's you a good, dig. That's a good quote. <laughs> Because nice. <laughs> today we are starting off our series all about westerns, and we're going to cover a different western movie each episode, same as we've been doing. But first, we're going to warm up with what we've been talking about, and before that, I have another podcast shout-out to give. Do it. Because we are... <laughs> we're like, well, <laughs> we are waiting. <laughs> part of the Prescribed Film Podcast Network, and we're under no compulsion to rep any of these other podcasts, but I want to give back and show love to other shows that are out there. And I'm slowly working my way through checking out all our other network neighbors. So this week I checked out Cracktastic Plastic. <laughs> that's a cool name. And oh yeah, this is uh, Jason's thing, right? Yeah, yeah, the the guy that's kind of over the network. Um, it's a podcast all about toy collecting. Yeah, which is one of the things I like about the network we're on because like it is primarily film focused, but then they have a few shows that are like ancillary to like. If you're already a film nerd, there's a chance that one of these other shows is going to catch you too into some other interest you have. I mean, I'm a toy collector, hardcore. So. Oh, yeah. So the core premise is that uh, the group that gathers are actually members of a punk rock band called X-Ray Mary. Nice. And spurred on by listening to this, I went and looked up their band. They're great. Early oh, level. Cool. Super good. I'll awesome. shoot you guys the link. I'll maybe put that in the show notes too. Yeah, it's just like it. a bonus. Um, but yeah, they just get together every episode and they talk about uh, toys and toy collecting and stuff. Um there's four main people, Corey, Jason, Spoonie, and Elgin. Is that like Knifey Spoonie? I don't know. I haven't heard them yet, but Spoonie um, is already my favorite. <laughs> I got a Simpsons reference in really um, quick. Or maybe it's, uh-huh, you did. Maybe it's Spoolie now that I'm thinking about it. Oh, well, no, I'm disappointed. Yeah. Oh. Clearly, you've never played Knifey Spoonie before. <laughs> or Knifey Spoolie. <laughs> That's all my bad. I'm sorry to whoever you are. Uh, I only listened to one episode, so I didn't quite get those names down Poor perfect. guy. He's sitting there like, we got a shout out, but he um, didn't remember me. What's cool is they each kind of have like their own like thing that they focus on. Like One of them is all about Transformers. One of them is all about G.I. Joe's. One of them is all about Masters of the Universe. And they kind of do the like... You know, like... Is one of them about Star Wars? I don't think so. I know they talk about Star Wars. Maybe I need to just uh, (laughs) go in there on their pod, like a guest on their pod, since I collect all the Star Wars I mean, the others are cool, too, especially Transformers. Mm. That was always Um, my favorite toy line. So, like, you know, we warm up every time talking about a film that we've watched. A lot of film podcasts do that. They warm up by talking about, like, the most recent toy they've bought, and they'll bring something to share. That's cool. (laughs) Almost like a show-and-tell thing. Um, so it's a lot of fun. They're very passionate. It's not a thing that like I'm into ever. Like I, I collect like I get a transformer here or there when there's mm-hmm. one I really think's cool looking or like random anime figures. Like that's a whole other world. Like figure arts and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way because I mean I have some monster figures over here, <laughs> yeah. but I don't really collect toys. Mm-hmm. But like most of my YouTube channels are all like toy channels, so I kind of live vicariously oh, yeah, yeah. watching those. Cause and a good I, chunk of your monster figures came from me. They sure did. <laughs> when I was like, oh, I need sure to did. downsize because I can't fit this shit in my house anymore. You didn't want to scare your child. So, so more yeah. than recommending this to anyone, Michael, you definitely need to go listen to this I podcast. know. I saw Jason had uh, shared mm. 
a post about it the other day and I was like, man, I really need to check that podcast out because I guarantee the new Masters of the Universe toys are pretty awesome. The new Six Inch line. That was the vibe I got off the one episode I listened to. Are they yeah. based off the cartoon? Or the new yeah, one, Re- Revolution, yeah. or, uh, Re- Re- Revelations. 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 And there's like Origin 2, which is like another line, I think. Uh, the Revelations one are cool. They're like super articulated. Mm. Um, I really wanted the Tila one, but I couldn't. <laughs> I don't. I don't have any of the others, and Piper was going to be like, "Why are we now collecting?" This once you line? once you start one, that's the I know the downfall. But the Tila looked great, so so I yeah. If you get it. dig toy it, collecting, it, man. be a rebel. Uh, crack tactic, crack tastic plastic. Go check them out. Very sweet, excellent. Jason, what you been watching? I'm happy to report I watched a good movie. Ooh. Mm, I watched a very good movie actually. Uh, the Rental from 2020. Yeah, mm-hmm. I read about that one. Mm-hmm. Um, which is directed by Dave Franco. You were just talking about him before we started. The same recording. Dave Franco. The same Dave Franco. Ah, yeah. Mm. Take a look at my shit. Look at my shit. <laughs> look at my shit. It's got a great cast. It's got Dan Stevens in it. Allison Brie. Um, it's basically it's about this these two couples. Um, there's two brothers and one of the wives and the other girlfriend, and they go to this cabin. You know, by the you oh, know, wait, wait, no, I know what this to, is to now. A, yeah, to get away yeah. for the weekend. This was written by somebody important. Hold on, I'm pulling. I think up. it was Dave Franco because no, I heard the synopsis no, no. for this and I was like, dude, this sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. sorry, continue. Of course. Um, yeah, so I don't want to say too much mm-hmm. because you don't really know where it's going to go at first. Uh, but it, it's it's one of those great movies where it's it could be, it could, it could be a play because it's basically just all set in this house. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's it's a great example of something I love in films is where one bad decision just leads to a cascade of more bad decisions nice. and horrible things happen. So without saying too much, good acting. It's it's directed well. It's a nice little movie. Uh, there's a couple of surprises I think in it. Without saying too much, I really can't go into it. Uh, but check it out. It is it's on Showtime right now. Mm. So, but yeah, get a you know, you can do the free rental, th- the free uh, trial thing. Oh yeah, and watch it I and watch Yellow Jackets while you're at it. <laughs> That's the whole reason I wanted to save my free trial yeah, to Yellow make Jackets, sure that I saw great. all of Yellow Jackets. Yeah, we'll now add the rental in there on it. I yeah, watch the rental. That this guy, um, so it's Joe Swanberg, is one of the writers. Yes, isn't he one of the Mumblegore people? Yes, yeah. I think he wrote your next. Yes. Um, which I think is... I like a lot of the stuff he's done. And he worked on VHS. Maybe he didn't write your next? He's in it, isn't it? He's yeah, in he's actors. in it. Yeah. But no, he is one of the Mumblegore people, yeah. which is one of... I think that's why I thought it was... Why I was like, it's important, somebody who wrote this. <laughs> Not that other people aren't important that wrote oh, yeah. it. Everyone's important, Michael. God. I mean, no, not really in the grand scheme of life, but okay. Wow, that's depressing. So I don't have a movie, per se. I have a a TV show again, but it's important. So Is it, like, important in the grand scheme of life important? Uh, Look, I'm tired of you guys breaking the rules here. You gotta do movies. What's wrong with you? What if it has a movie as well? Breaking the ball. Breaking the ball. Uh, continue. Okay. And I will so when this give airs, you my judgment. When this airs, it'll be way past. But as of recording, this week was zero one day, which is the day that Shout Factory has released Common Rider zero one on Blu-ray, which marks the first time the Common Rider franchise has kind of come over to the U.S. 
on home media, there's a little asterisk on that because there has been one of their release in the past, but it's kind of weird. It was a strange, like, only in Hawaii thing. That is strange. Put that out of your mind. Common okay. Riders in America, finally, and it's great. Right. Um, I've ranted about it before. I love this series. I love this franchise. It's been going since, like, the 70s on and off. And this is the first one? This is the first of, like, the new era they've been doing, which started, like, uh, two or three years ago. Oh, okay. I really want to watch it. It looks like something I'd really dig. Yeah. So, the, kind of the hook of these, they're tokusatsu shows. They're always about these people that transform into, like, armored heroes. It's very, like, Power Ranger-y, but it's a bit more... A bit more mature, I would say, and serious in focus. I mean, it's still a kid's show in the end, but it's like... Well, you know, first of all, what Japan thinks is okay to show to kids is way different than what we think here. Like, <laughs> yeah. There'll actually be, like, stakes, you know, where people could die and there's consequences if the bad guys win. Uh-huh. And it's not just, like, you know, totally safe. It doesn't talk down time. to the children and shit like that. Uh, yeah, but Zero One is, like, a great starting place. So I really wanted to promote it and shout it out there. Like, it's set in the near future, and it's about this company called Hidden Intelligence, and they've made these things called Huma Gears, which are, like, AI robots... They look like humans, and they can be programmed for any sort of job or task. So they're sex bots, is what you're saying. uh, They don't go that dark. No. Um, But basically, they're just meant to, like, assist humanity, right? They they can do jobs that people might be, like, uh, might be lethal to do or to help people with their regular tasks. So sex bots. (laughs) (laughs) Um, God damn it. (laughs) And the main character, Arto Heden, is, like, the grandson of the founder of this company. And mysteriously, one day, uh, the founder dies... And he sort of, like, inherits the company out of nowhere. Classic. And it's all heralded with this, like, prophecy by the founder that there's going to be this terrorist group that shows up. And we'll know how to, like, hack the Huma Gears and turn them against humanity. Which comes to pass with these, uh, this group called Mitsubo Jinrai Net. Which are Huma Gears that have, like, awakened and become self-aware. Another typical AI, like, trope plot concept. Yeah. And so they're trying to, like, cause an uprising among these human gear to, like, displace humanity. Cool. And uh, with the Zero-One driver, he transforms into this masked hero to kind of fight them off and protect people. And it really, it just is like a really good classic sci-fi story that goes through all the stuff of, like, if you know any sci-fi stuff like iRobot or anything, like, all those tropes of, like, do AIs have rights? Do, do they count as a person? You know, all those things. It works through all of that. Much like the... Uh Star Trek Next Generation episode, Measure of a Man, where they decided that Data was not property of Starfleet, and he was, in fact, sentient. You got that in real early this time. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's super fun, and if you love, like, you know, good, like, choreographed combat, crazy special effects, all that kind of fun stuff, it's really great. It's worth checking out. Um, they do have a streaming platform they're doing for all this stuff, and I think it's called, like, Toku Shoutsu, since Shout Factory is behind it. It's, like, yes. web-based. But I know they serve some of their stuff to different platforms, and one of them is Tubi. So our ever-reliant Tubi, you can go on there, you can search Common Writer, and you can check some of this stuff out if you've never encountered it before. I'm nice. going to watch it. Do it. I'm going to watch it. And it does have a theatrical film, so technically it kind of counts. Is it stitched together from the TV series, or is it like its own kind of spinoff? Um, it's sort of like an epilogue to the show. No, so. Okay. so technically, Jason, suck it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Michael, what you got? Um, so better not be a TV show. It's not. It's a fucking movie. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, I have a, um, always really liked, um, I mean, I grew up in the nineties, same as Dustin did. And so like I cut my teeth on Batman, the animated series. Oh yeah. Like it's still fucking great, man. Like it holds up. It holds up really well. But because of that, I always loved that style of animation and kind of the DC heroes thing. Mm-hmm. I never really read DC comics very much. 
Um, I was very sparingly on that. Yeah, they were. I don't know. I, I was thought, a Marvel kid. All yeah. the Marvel heroes are like flawed and make mistakes and stuff, you know. So well, interesting that you say that because what I watched was one of the new DC animations um, uh, studios thing that they put out for Injustice, mm. which. I guess there's a video game based yep. on it. Um, I didn't play that. Yeah, it started as games, and they spun it off into comics and on and on. So now DC Animations, which has actually been carrying the ball really well as far as like doing animated... Uh, That's always carried DC. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> but their stuff's really good. Like I've said before, mm-hmm. uh, Under the Red Hood's one of my yeah. favorites. It's such a great story. They're the same kind of animation that drove like Batman... The animated series, the Superman animated Justice series, League. Justice League, same animation style. So it's very familiar, but they kind of take on a bunch of classic storyline, comic storylines. Like right before this one, they did the Long Halloween, which is probably my favorite Batman story. I watched the first half and really liked it, and then I fell asleep in the second half. So, um, <laughs> oh no, that's just because I have a kid. Uh, <laughs> but there's usually a lot of pretty high-profile voice talent on mm-hmm. these, and they get some cool people to do it. So Injustice is basically the story. It's set in an alternate Earth, so not Earth-1, Superman, and Batman, like all those or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the Joker tricks Superman into accidentally killing Lois Lane, which causes a rampage. Um, and then Superman decides he's going to take control of Earth and kind of do... It very much reminds me of the current boys storyline <laughs> of the boys where... They're like, well, what if we just put superheroes in charge? Like, nobody mm-hmm. else will break the law and all mm-hmm. this stuff. It's kind of like, what happens if Superman goes totalitarian? I think it's funny because there's been all these comics that have now become shows about, like, what if Superman was evil? And now it seems like DC's general gimmick these days is to go, well, what if Superman was yeah, evil? Yeah, exactly. That's, and that's pretty much what Injustice is. And it's kind of breaks Superman's always like, no, we don't kill people. You know, we've got to be better than that kind of a thing. But because Superman faces like a horrible loss, he just breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now it's left to like Batman and a few of the other allies that are like, hey, this is wrong. This isn't, this is injustice. Um, <laughs> to, <laughs> to stop Superman. And it turns out they fucking can't. Jason's just wanting to scream right now. <laughs> I'm all right. I'm good. <laughs> uh, but Jason, something I think you might find cool is the voice of Batman. And this one is Anson Mount. Oh, cool. Yes. Um, Star Trek reference too mm-hmm. so. yeah definitely <laughs> um yeah it's mostly kind of like if you're familiar with the voice actors that do a lot of the cartoons and stuff a lot of those guys show up in this like fred tatasciore and uh kevin pollack actually vokes voices the joker in oh, this one that's interesting so it's kind of fun for me the joker is usually always mark hamill oh yeah but it's cool to see other actors put their spin on the joker and stuff mm-hmm. like that this was streaming on hbo max um, it's okay. So is it just a film, like a standalone? Yeah, you know? it's uh, like uh, maybe an hour 45 or something like that. Cool. Uh, it's not the best one of this. But you stayed awake for it. So. I did. I did, yeah. it's. I wouldn't say it's the best one, mainly just because the storyline's a little tired. Mm-hmm. You know, because it feels like when I was watching it, I was like, I'd rather just watch The Boys. <laughs> it's like The Boys. It's like Civil War. All they've, That's been comic books for a while Everybody's now. done it. Let's make our guys fight our guys. But the... The voice acting is really top-notch. The animation's really good. It's very slick to look at. And so even for the worst ones of these, they're still a lot of fun to watch. So kind of lighthearted fun for me. Kind of takes me back to my childhood. A little bit of nostalgia. Cool. Nice. So yeah, if you want to check it out. I uh, like that Jason skewed super serious. And then you and I are talking about kids shows. 
Oh yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, well, this well, is not injustice. There, there has to be at least one adult in the room. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I should preface though: injustice is not for children. Hmm. I want, do they actually like go full tilt with yeah. like the violence and stuff? Because the games I remember were like rated M. Superman punches like uh, somebody cuts off Solomon Grundy's arm. Uh, I think it's Superman, uh, like with his laser eyes or whatever. Um, and then Superman kills somebody. I won't say who because it's spoiler. Mm-hmm. By but like literally just punches straight through their chest, and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then there's a lot of like they say shit a lot in it, so it's definitely not a kids, not a kids one for this one. I think it's rated R. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. That's, yeah, it is. Bonus. It is rated R. It's an hour and eighteen minutes, and Jason, it's rated R. Jason's back in. I do like violence, <laughs> freaks in <of> nature. <laughs> I do. Uh, yeah, so right. HBO Max, check it out if you want. All right, so today we're launching off our block about Western films. And we're starting with Michael's pick, which is Silverado. Ride them in raw hide. Um, and since this is the start of this series, and it's the first time we've ever talked about Westerns on this podcast, I thought it would be a good idea to do our usual bit of background, bit of setup. I mean, I think generally everyone knows what a Western is, but it's worth talking about a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. some clarification. I think there's some people who don't know what a Western is, though, based on some of the shit you read and the conversations we had amongst <laughs> ourselves. So Why don't you we'll tell see. us? Let's hash those out. So, Westerns are a genre of fiction and film set primarily in the later half of the 19th century and the early 20th century in the Western United States, which is typically stylized as the Old West or the Wild West. And sometimes it looks a lot like Italy. <laughs> From time to time, yes. Uh, More specifically, the American Film Institute says that a Western film is one that is set in the American West and embodies the spirit, the struggle, and the demise of that new frontier. Uh, The term Western was used to describe a narrative film genre, um, and it appears to have first originated in July 1912 in an article in Motion Picture World magazine. Most of the characteristics of Western films were part of the 19th century popular Western fiction originally, so it was firmly placed in popular art before it transferred over into film. Uh, some of the first films that would have belonged to this genre were a series of short single reel silence made in 1894 by Edison Studios. Um, and they featured veterans like Buffalo Bill's Wild West show exhibiting their skills. And that included people like Annie Oakley with shooting and uh, members of the Sioux doing different dances. Um, the earliest known Western narrative film is the British short Kidnapping by Indians, made by Mitchell and Kenyon in Blackburn, England in 1899. Um, one you'll often hear about is The Great Train Robbery from 1903. Yeah. That's often pointed to as the first one, but it technically wasn't the first. It was kind of just the first that like shot off and popularized everything. Mm. Well, yeah, probably because that other one was pretty racist. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, they all are for quite a while, so I can't really like give one credit and the other. Um, so that's kind of the inception. So then I think the next thing to talk about is sort of the elements. Like, we have the broad level. It's about the Old West, the, quote, Wild West. It's also kind of insane that movies are being made about the Old West when it was still basically the Old <laughs> like West. Like the New yeah. West. I mean, yeah. the, the Civil War was only over for, like, what, 30 years or mm-hmm. something? Uh, 1865 made? is... yeah. It's yeah. a funny thing I think in general about America is that like we don't have like a far back history that mm-hmm. we can like toss to for things like this. 
So it really is just the Wild West is yeah. like our one thing. Yeah, that's our mythology. Um, so what are Westerns more specifically if we dig in? So the stories commonly center on the life of a nomadic drifter character, often male, often white. Typically, they're a cowboy or a gunfighter who will ride a horse and is armed with a revolver or a rifle. Very often, they'll wear broad-brimmed hats, uh, neckerchief bandanas, vests, cowboy boots, spurs, or other similar attire. Very often, and especially true of earlier films in the genre, women will be cast in secondary roles, often as either the romantic interest or a supporting role, such as saloon girls, prostitutes, wives of ancillary characters... Uh, characters included to be like comic relief. Obviously, as film has progressed, that's become much better over time. Obviously, um, <laughs> to a degree, <laughs> to a degree. never far to enough. A degree. Yeah. Um, other recurring character types include Native Americans of various tribes, African Americans, Mexicans, lawmen, bounty hunters, outlaws, bartenders, traders, gamblers, soldiers. Because as you mentioned, the Civil War mm-hmm. relevant of this time. Pioneers and various types of settlers, from farmers to ranchers. Um, if we want to talk about ambience and kind of the style or tone, uh, as far as like score, they would often use American folk music. Depending on the setting, they would blend that with maybe Spanish or Mexican folk music as well. Um, Westerns would often stretch the harshness of the wilderness, and they frequently would be set in arid, desolate landscapes such as the deserts, mountains, plains. Um, often the vast landscape will play an important role to the film and present a sort of mythic vision of the American West. Uh, typical locations might include stuff like ranches, frontier towns, saloons, railways, the open wilderness, or perhaps an isolated military fort. Uh, many Westerns will often use stock plots that depict things like a crime and then show the pursuit of the wrongdoing and then end in a sort of revenge or retribution that often gets resolved through a shootout. The only way to resolve your differences, in my opinion. Um, if it worked for Hamilton's kid, it worked for me. <laughs> yeah. I thought it would be worth noting, too, that technically in the broader sense of things, Westerns are considered period dramas. And among those, we have things like the samurai genre in Japan. And those, these two genres have actually influenced one another a ton. Oh, yeah. Uh, very prominently, you have The Magnificent Seven, which was a remake of Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, and A Fistful of Dollars, which was a remake of Yojimbo. But when you flip that around, Kurosawa himself was very influenced by early American films that he saw, and even Yojimbo's kind of based upon Red Harvest. So there's an interesting, like, circular interplay there mm, yeah. between the two. There, It's eerie when you play, like, scenes from Yojimbo, and then, like, you just literally put the exact same scene on from Fistful of Dollars, and it's, it's like, exactly the same yeah. scene, <laughs> shot the same, everything about it's the same, just Clint Eastwood's in one and not in the other. So that's as far as, like, broader aspects. So then let's talk about, like, themes. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if you guys have anything to add to anything I'm saying, just jump No, I will. It. Okay. You're doing a good, <laughs> thorough job. He's very thorough. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say the next part. He's a good man. <laughs> thorough. <laughs> and thorough. <laughs> so if we talk about themes of these films, um, often there's a portrayal of, like, the conquest of the wilderness... Uh, you know, man versus nature, the conquering of nature, the settling of land, 
Um, often that leads into concepts and themes that are pretty taboo these days because it gets into sort of the taking of the land of Native Americans. Well, this is very much during the time of Manifest Destiny. And so many other injustices that America as a nation carried out during those times. Yeah, it seems like no film genre was out some sort of... Uh problematic aspect i think though like the best westerns that not like the the hotel um (laughs) chain but i think the some of the those definitely are not (laughs) the best (laughs) i think some of the best westerns that usually come to mind though um i think certain generations will disagree as to what those westerns will be but to me the ones that are always my favorite that i think are just such solid films are the ones that almost acknowledge yeah that me whole, too, man. that yeah. fact you know like the john wayne stuff i mean i've ranted about him enough we probably killed every listener <laughs> that we had for that but like that very firmly was in the in the camp of like oh indian bad you know mm-hmm. white man good kind of a thing but then you take like the clint eastwood films that come out and right they're much more nothing's black and white in this. no no everything's gray and everybody seems to realize like we're kind of doing a shitty thing here mm-hmm. you know and that when you get revenge paid upon you by maybe a native american or um somebody from mexico like you're like well (laughs) you (laughs) kind (laughs) of um so the western often depicts a society that's organized around codes of honor both personal and of, of like the land or that area uh what you might call frontier justice often will be dispensed or resolved through gunfights Often, those will be played out through depictions of feuds or things like people seeking personal revenge or vengeance against someone who has wronged them personally. Um, the depiction of personal justice in Westerns contrasts sharply with other justice systems that would be organized around rationalistic, abstract laws that would exist in cities, where thereby with those laws, the social order would be maintained. But yeah, you don't find that in these Western settings. Right. It and- steps away from the idea of like laws in courtrooms that can typically... Yeah. adjudicate all that kind of stuff and it's so like i mean the wild west wasn't nearly as wild as people think it was and that that's the funny part because mm-hmm. it's, it's all based on mythology basically right and right. romanticized you know? yeah because most towns had you know firearms ordinance they you couldn't just bring your guns into town you know what are you trying to say <laughs> <laughs> what are you trying to say jason and gunfights were so rare <laughs> i mean like, we do historically know that there were that the justice system was not quite as black and white as it was like in larger cities back east. You know, there was mm-hmm. much more like he said, "You did this." They saw it. Sorry, yeah, that's yeah. how it is. But that's mostly because you, if you, you were still, you didn't have these towns that were solidified yet. Like as there were no states yet here, so these are settlements. The settlements still fall under the jurisdiction of the next biggest town. So you can't just like mm-hmm. if there's a crime in your town, it would be it would take way too long to try to go bring in a judge, mm-hmm. have the trial. So essentially, you know, you did have this form of like, you know, renegade justice that tried to rely as much on the law as possible, but most of the people who were trying them weren't lawyers. Right. So historically we know that's true, and we do know that there were a lot of people who were in trouble on the e- in the east. Oh yeah, flee out west. That would flee out west away. just to kind of run away. So that kind of 
And there's plenty of film plots that are exactly that plot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. From either so, side. So historically, we do know that kind of plays into the, quote, Wild West, mm-hmm. you know, making it so dangerous. And so to make a connection from this idea of the Wild West and what I was talking about, like how we as America, a country, don't really have like all this history to like romanticize and pull upon. A lot of people have suggested that the Wild West cowboy is kind of spun off of a, as a literary descendant from things like the Knight Errant, who Absolutely. would be like the central character in Arthurian romances. Uh, so like, just like a gunfighter would wonder about the Knight Errant, and earlier European tales or poetry would wander place to place by horse, fight various villains, and they had no fixed social structures that they were held to, just some sort of personal code of honor that they upheld. Mm-hmm. And same thing, they would go forward, they would often rescue damsels in distress or solve problems in the areas they came upon. And equally, if we then jump back over to the samurai film, that's very akin to this idea of the, the ronin, the wandering samurai. Mm-hmm. Yep. Most of the tales that we have that come from the West are from people, writers from the big city who travel out to basically get ideas, you know, yeah, to, oh, yeah. to then sell penny dreadfuls yeah, or whatever so sensationalized and everything and and it becomes joke like it becomes a joke to people throughout history that what will they write about me you know mm-hmm. so you you have to know that those guys those writers are heavily influenced by what they've read oh yeah if they're educated which i'm sure they are if they're mm-hmm. out there writing so they're trying to make it the same thing that they've read and really build it up when i'm sure it probably really sucked to live in the, in the West at that time. <laughs> Likely, yeah. You die of dysentery. Yes, the, the Oregon Trail Classic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I guess, final thing, if you guys don't have anything else to add as far as, like, elements or themes, broadly. No, no, no I not think, the moment. Um, very thorough. I will take us on a whirlwind through the history of this genre okay. as best I can. Mm-hmm. So, we, we know from where it started, uh, Western films were enormously popular during the silent film era with the advent of sound in 1927 and into 28, most major Hollywood studios rapidly abandoned the Western to focus on other projects, and the idea of Westerns were kind of left to smaller studios and producers that would operate on a lower budget. Um, over the intervening years in the 30s, these smaller organizations turned out countless low-budget features and serials, and by the late 1930s, Western films were generally regarded as a pulp genre in Hollywood. It was something you'd kind of, you know, shoot out to make some money, but not something that you would consider, like, much like important. The, much like the horror genre. Yes, we, we know that all too well. <laughs> um, but its popularity was dramatically revived in 1939 by a big-budget studio production like Dodge City and then John Ford's landmark western Stagecoach, which... There's John Wayne for you. Yeah. Michael, sorry. We can't talk about westerns. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, it's... The, they're synonymous so you can't Um, really take it away so off the backs of films like that and they just had this huge surge in popularity they continued to be put into production and they rose and rose in popularity until a peak in the 1950s when at that time the number of western films being produced outnumbered all other genres combined Hmm. which is crazy if you think about it that is crazy Uh, so in general this period from the late 30s on into the 60s is often coined by people as the golden age of the western it's epitomized by the works of different directors and prominent films, and it ranges from things like Stagecoach, which I mentioned in 39, uh, The Gunfighter from 1950, High Noon in 52, 310 to Yuma in 57, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance in 62, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly in 66, and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in 69. 
There are thousands of other films I could list. <laughs> yes. That's just a sampling to shoot around about if you want to check some of those out. Uh, shoot around about. <laughs> um, during this time, various subgenres also came into existence where they kind of split from the broader formula of what a Western was and focused in on something else. You've got things like the singing cowboy films, comedy Westerns, spaghetti Westerns, which of course we love mm-hmm. very much mm-hmm. so. Uh, even spun out of those, they uh, would do a focus more on like the Mexican Revolution area, and they had Zapata films. Um, in the 1960s, and then moving into the 70s, uh, the Western genre got reinvented by a lot of filmmakers into what is known as the revisionist Western. And this is kind of what you were talking about, Michael. Um, it's often coined to be like the anti-Western, which is where in the 60s, as the Hays Code restrictions got relaxed they kind of looked back at this mythical and romantic idea and wanted to make films that would subvert that and present a more realistic view of what life in the Old West would be like. And that led to films... (laughs) Yes, very shitty. (laughs) Spoiler. And that led to films like Ombre in 67 and The Wild Bunch in 69. Ah, The Wild Bunch is great. I love The Wild Bunch. Uh, Often these films are sometimes called psychological westerns because they will very, very much focus on one character and kind of their mentality and what they go through. Um, and usually through the expense of like the action and thrills that you would normally have in a Western, they come out the other end, maybe a little more scarred than you would think. Um, one more I wanted to mention just for fun. Um, in that shift of the sixties to the seventies, there was a genre that came forth that got coined as acid Western. Now this was associated with filmmakers like Dennis Hopper, Jim McBride, Rudy Wurlitzer, and kind of the trademark one to me, I think, is El Topo from 1970 by Alejandro Jodorowsky. <laughs> yeah, that's a trip, all right. Um, they mix elements of surrealism and psychedelia into, like, the standard story of a Western to just do real weird stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but, man, they're fun. <laughs> Michael, you would probably hate them. El Topo is, like, one of those pinnacle midnight movies. Mm. Yeah, it's just, it's... Incredible. Yeah. I've always meant to watch it, and then it's always, I end up, like, I don't think I'm in the mood for that. you got to be ready for <laughs> gotta it. you got to be in the mood, that's for sure. Um, so moving from the 70s on into the 80s, the genre kind of died down a little bit. Uh, big budget moved on to like other things besides westerns. However, later on, there was a handful of films that came out that kind of shot them back into relevance. Um, one of which is the movie we're talking about today. What? what? So Verano. Um so let's see what it was. Oh, in 1980, there was a epic Western called Heaven's Gate. <laughs> and it had this notorious financial failure that just totally flopped. Famous flop. And when and that, Michael Seminole's career. Yeah. And when that happened, like for Hollywood, that was like the Western is done. Don't make them. They won't make any money. It's over. But then in 85, kind of in and around that year, it just chained off all these films. You had Pell Rider in 85, Lust in the Dust in 84, Rustler's Rhapsody in 85, Three Amigos in 86, and then, of course, our film Silverado was 85. So all these films kind of hit, like, right in the same handful of years, and all of them performed well. And it really, like, revitalized the interest in Westerns. Did Lust in the Dust perform well? The one with the vine? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) To us, maybe, but... (laughs) The point was, it it was there at that time. Yes, it was there, and it was a Western, yes. Um, Yeah, and so... That shot it back up into popularity and kind of continuing forward, I guess what would you say? It's probably not been like a super prominent genre, but it's always, there's always films coming out 
yeah, our westerns. Yeah, definitely a handful of years. Well, it's interesting what most happen now are kind of the straight to straight to red box mm-hmm. um, kind of westerns. They're very they seem to be super cheap to make. It's almost gone back to that pulp designation. Yeah, again. that or they're really art house. Mm-hmm. Like. Um, Oh, there's like a um, a country singer Trace Adkins mm. that shows up in a lot of them, and you're like, "Oh <laughs> fuck, man, what are you like?" Okay, I guess you're an actor now, but it, and when you if you ever try to watch these, these are very much catering to a specific audience that is like, "Yeah, I just want to watch some westerns today." <laughs> They're bad. <laughs> They're real bad. Well, like most movies, but every now and again, there is kind of like a big budget push that comes out, like the True Grit re- remake. That was a big deal. That's yeah. pretty good too. And that film's amazing, I think, especially compared to the original. Uh, yeah, I mm-hmm. mean, I'd take that one over the original any day. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and because we do regularly deal in horror, we should say that horror westerns are their own subgenre as well. There's not a, no, nearly yeah. enough of those, though, man. No. The one I'll always throw out if people are curious is Bone Tomahawk. That's definitely worth a watch. Bone Tomahawk is amazing. It's I'd also so throw good. out The Burrowers. The yep. Burrowers. And they're both just as much a western as they are a horror. Right. You couldn't yeah. like divorce either yeah. part from it. The but setting bone, is intrinsic to the horror. Bone Tomahawk is fucking great. Oh, it's just, okay. it's fantastic. Kurt so, Russell's just awesome in it. So, so that to me, if you are listening and you've only been on board for the horror, maybe check one of those out and see if it can be your inroad into this as a genre. There I would say a lot of people probably watched um, Hateful Eight, you mm-hmm. know, because of Tarantino's. Yeah, that's actually a really good one. That's Tarantino's best movie in a long time. I mean, yeah. And then Django Unchained <laughs> was a big deal too when it came out. It was. Yeah. A little less successful, in my opinion, but not a bad movie at all. And I then like them both. they're kind of like smattered in between. Like you'll, it seems like though a lot of times when a western is taken seriously, it tends to win an Oscar. You yeah. know, like Unforgiven. Yeah, Unforgiven's yeah. fantastic. Um, Which that's a great like deconstruction of oh, everything about like westerns. It's a perfect movie. Uh, Cold Mountain is in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I even Brokeback Mountain. You yeah. know, like. We were discussing when we start talking about things being uh, neo-Western, like this term. I cut that out of my notes because I figured it would be its own discussion. Well, this term that gets thrown out about like modern films that are that people classify as a Western, but they don't fit the traditional tropes of a Western. And like the one that you brought up, Dustin, was um, people saying "No Country for Old Men's a Western." Jason mm-hmm. and I immediately called bullshit on it. Well, it's as much a neo noir, which is its own yeah. <laughs> nebulous category. Yeah, it's, but it's like, just set in the West. It could be set anywhere and just still tell the same story. And so I think that that kind of yeah. And then, but if I put Brokeback Mountain on that, I'm not sure that it would. If you took that, if you took the locale out of that film, I don't think it would work as well. Mostly because they're dealing with the machismo. Right. That's, that's part of the whole taboo of their relationship is that... Right. The they could kind be like construction workers or something, you know. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But we should probably go ahead and start jumping into our yeah. film. So there's your whirlwind background on Westerns. I hope it did enough justice. Let's I mean, talk, we're going to talk, talk, talk more about them over the next... Yeah, there's plenty of time that, to hit all the uh, little spots. That each there. one of us talked. Um, so, so what is this movie, Michael? Mine, Silverado, 1985, written by the legendary Lawrence Kasdan. Who? Lawrence Kasdan. If you don't know Lawrence Kasdan, <laughs> let me tell you about uh, a movie that I think you all have probably seen. The Force Awakens. Uh, let's not talk about that one. Um, and Solo, a Star Wars story. Okay, now that gets a bad rap. I liked it. I like it. Nothing wrong with Solo for me. 
But most yeah, importantly, the writer totally. of Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm. Um, he's also the writer of The Big Chill. Empire Strikes Back. Are you getting to that one? Yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I mean, you could look at the dude's list and it's like so many big films that we grew up on. Like, they're, they're all right here. Um, but Silverado focuses on... Um, a couple of uh, a couple of guys who've kind of had a, a rough past. Um, Do you want me to read the synopsis? Yeah, go ahead and give it. Okay. Stop <laughs> yeah. fucking every up time, already. A couple of guys. Oh, couple you know of... I actually didn't bring the synopsis because I knew it was your film. Oh, well, that's where you fucked up. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, well, you basically start off with... Um, How dare I suspect you to do that? We start right. off like all good Western shit with a fucking shootout. Like, immediately, bam. We've got starring in this film Kevin Kline, um, who you don't particularly think of as someone from a Western, because we're going to throw out uh, the Wild Wild West yeah. out of that. We're just... we're just. Well, uh, this cast is amazing. This cast Here's is... Here's the synopsis. It, oh. I've settled this problem. Okay, thank do you. Do it. Four, un- <laughs> four unwitting heroes cross paths on their journey to the sleepy town of Silverado. Little do they know that the town where their family and friends reside has been taken over by a corrupt sheriff and a murderous posse. It's up to the sharpshooting foursome to save the day. But first they have to brick each other out of jail and learn who their real friends are. Yeah. Uh, so when we first come across our main character, Peyton, um, Peyton is... Well, we start with Emmett, right? Yeah, we start yeah. with Emmett. He's in the shack. Emmett is Scott Glenn, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. you, the last episode, Jason was like, I think it's got one of the Carradines in it because Scott Glenn is who you cast if you wanted David Carradine and you couldn't afford David Carradine. <laughs> <laughs> or is that the other way around? It's his hair. His hair looks just like David Carradine. And his facial structure, they're yeah. very, very similar. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you get this super killer shootout. Uh, he's in a shack. Basically, and these guys are starting. It is to, not a love shack. Like it might have been, <laughs> but people are starting to surround him, and mm-hmm. he's just like doing his awesome, typical cowboy like. Yeah, blows them all away. Shoot from the hip, mm-hmm. you know. Always knows where they are, firing away. Um, and he takes off with one of their horses, which becomes an important plot point later, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then as he's traveling through now, uh, he comes across Peyton. Which is one of the weirdest intros ever for a character, I think. Yeah. That's one of the things I like is that he's tied up in his union suit mm-hmm. out in the desert. With like pink long johns. Yeah, it's yeah. his union suit. It's got a <laughs> flap in the back for you to shit from. Is that what it's called? A union suit, yes. I've never heard that before. You fucking serious? I am. I am serious. I have also never heard that before. Okay. Is yes. this a you thing? Is this no. like a, a cypher <laughs> family is, thing? No, this is a... <laughs> he goes home and he has a whole closet full of nothing but these... <laughs> I've always wanted a union suit. Okay, a union suit. If you pull this up, uh, a, a Wikipedia union suit is a type of one-piece long underwear uh, most associated with menswear in the late 19th and 20th centuries. I thought they were just called like long johns or something. No, that comes later. These are called union suits. Oh, okay. Okay. Anyways. Because long across- johns don't have the poop flap, right? <laughs> Correct. Okay. He comes across this guy. He's tied up out there. No supplies, nothing. Yeah, he's badly like sunburned. He's he's just laying there. You think maybe he's dead? It's Kevin Klein. He's not dead. <laughs> he's the main character. Uh, so we quickly find out that they are friends. Are or they, they become though? friends? They become yeah. friends, right? They don't know each other. They're strangers. Well, but yeah, you guys need to walk through this better than I do. Oh my god. Oh, okay, so right. He, you know I'm bad at like recalling things he, he other res- than minor he, trivia. He rescues Kevin Klein's character, Peyton. Mm-hmm. Who says that he was uh, he met was, up with some other people on the trail, rode with them, and they 
you know, jumped them and took his shit and left them to die. Right. Yep. They took his horse, which he loves, he's most upset about, and his hat. Which I struggled with that, like, plot hookup, because um, there, there's the Cannibal the Musical by Matt Stone and Trey Parker, <laughs> <laughs> which is, like, a technically a musical western that's also a comedy western. Uh-huh. I fucking love it, and it's hilarious, but the main character in that, he's, like, obsessed with his horse. Maybe they cribbed so. that off Silverado. Well, um, already what I think Silverado is doing and letting you know is this is an just as much of an homage film mm-hmm. to the golden age of Westerns. Yep. Because so many of the things, they subvert a lot of the expectations of typical plot points. But I think what Payton is trying to suggest here is that, you know, where they took my hat, it's always like the good guy never loses his hat. Mm-hmm. You know, in the classic Westerns, he could be shot at, fall off a horse. And if his hat comes off, it's always there, mm-hmm. you know? So, and there was oftentimes, um, you know, a very strong bond between the cowboy and his horse. They'd often have... Don't raise your eyebrow like that. It's not that kind of strong bond. <laughs> well, no, no. You think of like the Lone Ranger, right? Yeah, yeah. like uh, Hi-Ho Silver mm-hmm. and then Trigger, I think, is the Lone Rangers. No, Silver is Lone Rangers. Yeah. Trigger was uh, Hopalong Cassidy, maybe? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. But that's, you know, that's old timer stuff. But the horse is always important <laughs> yeah, look at yeah, to the main character. It's typically a, mm-hmm. a classic thing. Um and so we've already subverted that now with our hero of the film being left for dead. They took his horse, they took his hat, everything that makes him a hero. Yeah, but uh, Emmett helps him up, takes him to town. I think it's what, to Turley? It's the town they go to? Turley's the first town they go yep. to, yes. And I, I love this scene because when he shows up, he's still in his union suit. <laughs> Everyone's just kind of looking at him funny. <laughs> just standing in the middle of the town. Uh, it's Roy Rogers who had trigger. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Roy okay. Rogers, of course. Keep me going. Since I yeah, so they get into town. Suck it, plots. Oh, my God. <laughs> they get into uh, town. Um, I just pick the movies. You guys do the work, okay? And we, we learn that Emmett's there to find his brother, Jake. Played by a uh, very young Kevin Costner in possibly... It's not his first, first role, but it's his first big role. This is one of the things I like about this movie and, and Lawrence Kasdan in general. It's, it's, it's such a good screenplay. Because they come into town and you see they're putting up... Um, gallows they're going to hang yep. somebody right okay. yeah well that probably happens a lot around here whatever it's not really remarked upon it's just something you see and that comes up later though you know he's always planting these little seeds that yeah there, come there's up always later. a lot of like setup payoff going right on in which i think a lot of modern films just they just don't do they won't they'll tell they won't show sometimes though these require um an intelligent audience no to pick up I mean, I mean, this was a mainstream Hollywood film. It, yeah. It's not like an art movie. Or and anything. it's really, pr- like, the plot itself is, like, straightforward, you yeah. would say. But I think to drop foreshadowing hints throughout a film is lost because what now we get with foreshadowing is they'll give us a flashback. Mm-hmm. You know, like, remember? They'll actually give a fucking <laughs> flashback of something you just saw 40 minutes ago. So that you make sure that you know. It's like, God, I'm not fucking idiot. Um, but I so, mean, I am, because I don't remember the, how to walk you through the plot of this movie very well. But. Well, Payton sees uh, his horse. Yep. Yeah. Tied yeah. up. Yeah. So he, he goes over there, you know, and he, no, he goes to get a gun. It's the first yeah. thing he does. He goes he into gets, a shop. Uh, someone tosses him, as Emmett tosses him a little money, I think, to get clothes. Or That's right. Yeah. He tosses him coin to get some clothes. He goes in and he tries to take a gun. Shop owner stops him. Yeah, I love the scene because he picks up like the nicest yeah. gun that's in there. Yeah. And, then and he's, he's like, how much is it? And it's like way more than he can afford. And he's like, well, how much is it to rent it? <laughs> <laughs> he can't get rid of rent guns. Hey, what will this get me? And it gives him this 
revolver that's falling apart. It already looks like an antique. Mm-hmm. Right. But he takes it and he uses it. Yeah, he immediately just marches out there and shoots the guy down. Yeah, because the guy sees uh, Peyton on his horse and he starts riding toward him. And he's shooting the whole way. <laughs> he shoots. He shoots at the crotch of his union suit, which is hilarious. There's. We should say there's a lot of comedy built into it's this film. In, yeah. Um. And but it's that. It's not. It's that kind of. It's that Raiders of the Lost Ark comedy. You know, like. It's not slapstick. No, I mean it's still smart comedy. Yeah. You know, it's just, it doesn't insult your intelligence. It's enough in there just to give you a laugh. And even with this crappy old gun, uh, Peyton takes him down. And now this is where Peyton gets arrested, correct? Incorrect. Okay, keep going. God damn it. Incorrect. I, um, fucking. Uh, <laughs> I swear I watched it. But he gets his horse, and he's like loving on his horse and mm-hmm. everything. And yeah, like the law comes out, and they're asking him all these questions. Yeah, they meet. Does uh, it Sheriff Langston? I think. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which is played Shortly. by John Cleese. John Cleese, Sheriff Langston. Um, and also in this town, they run into, importantly, one of Emmett's. I'm sorry, one of Peyton's yeah, old associates. Yep. Played by Brian Dennehy. Uh, what's his character's name? I can't recall. Oh, shit. Um, damn it. I had it all pulled up. There's a lot of characters Where in this the, film. There is a shit ton of characters. And some of them are na- are people that you've seen many times in films that just pop up and have like a bit role. Cobb. Yeah, Cobb. Cobb, Cobb. yes. Yeah. Um, and they have a little um, encounter, and you can tell there's like some friction there. We learn later that Cobb and Payton have a past. Yeah, and yeah. That all, all of those movies just like drops in these little little hints every now and then because there's a lot of characters and there's a lot of backstories, but it does a really good job of like drip feeding you everything you need to know so you don't really get confused. Right? Do you think so? I think so. Mm-hmm. I didn't get confused watching it. It's kind of hard to, to, to describe because mm-hmm. it is. It's actually a really intricate screenplay. There there are times where I think Silverado, because I think it differs so much in the way it's written, mm-hmm. that I think it, it can subvert your expectations, and you, I think you can get lost if you're not careful. I didn't get lost. Well, that's for sure. <laughs> I've got some hot takes that we're going to get to you. Ooh, you're okay. You're oh. an intelligent <laughs> bastard. <laughs> One of the things we also learned a little bit about Emmett um, earlier was that he did some time in Leavenworth. Yep. So that's a little piece of information we learn more about later. And we know that his brother Jake is locked up because he killed a man, which he swears was in self-defense. Yes. And he's the <laughs> man they're building the gallows for to hang the next day. I This is a Kevin Costner performance that you haven't seen. He's like, so good in this. And yet he didn't do this ever again. He wasn't... Uh, this was like his first big movie. He, he had shot scenes with a big chill, also with... That Lawrence Kasdan made. Yeah. Also with uh, Jeff Goldblum. Was in the big chill. He shows up here. Uh, so was Kevin Klein. Yeah, Kevin Klein was in the big chill. Uh, and like this was his first big movie, and he's great. I mean, you, you could see why he became so. He's big. just like he's playing this young hotshot, like very cocky, but likable. He's uh, not an asshole. Oh yeah, no, he's not an asshole. Well, I found him to be very obnoxious. I'll yeah, be but it, it wasn't in a uh, irritating, mean way though. It's not like okay, like here's an example. Something I didn't like about what was it, the Amazing Spider-Man, Andrew Garfield, because he to me he played Spider-Man as an asshole, like a complete asshole. Uh oh, uh oh. And he wasn't like fun or funny. Uh oh, that's Dustin's favorite. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, he's my favorite Spider-Man. I know he is. You got you Uh-oh. love Andrew Garfield. I know, but <laughs> I mean that is Spider-Man though. He quips and he, and he quips, talks. but he came across as a jerk. And to me, Spider-Man was never a jerk. 
work. No, I don't think so, man. But maybe I haven't, you know, read enough Spider-Man comics or any Spider-Man comics. But anyway. Because, like, the, the Amazing Spider-Man 2, the first time he fights Electro, he's, like, pleading with him to, like, let me help you, let me fix this. That's, like, Spider-Man to me. is like, even when he's fighting, he's trying to, like, help the person. Okay, well, that was the second one. <laughs> but anyway, anyway. Okay, anyway. well, Jake, though, I think is supposed to be slightly annoying. Like, I think his character is supposed to be because he's the one who's always getting himself into trouble. Yeah, he's, but he has a good heart. He's firing his mouth off before, you know. And we see that there's a really fun scene of how uh, Kevin Klein gets out of jail because uh, he ends up landing himself in jail with Jake. Um, but there's a really fun scene of how they end up getting out. Right, he finds the dude with his hat, right? And doesn't he shoot him? Yeah. And that's how he gets arrested, finally, and put in prison. Um, so while he's in the cell with Jake, Jake is like hooping and hollering and shit and like swinging all over the damn place. Yeah, he and starts like doing jungle gym <laughs> stuff on top of the bars. It's just really. I swear to God, I bet that was improvised. Probably. That, that looked like something that wasn't scripted and he just started. Oh, doing you know, it. one thing we should talk about before we go through this prison break thing. Uh, our fourth character gets introduced. Yes. They, meet, this they meet Mal in the, in the. Played by Danny Glover, who to me was like far and away my favorite character in the film. Oh, and he's great. Pre-lethal weapon, Danny mm-hmm. Glover too. Yeah. So. so it's Emmett and Peyton are sitting down having, I think it's, I guess it's breakfast. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. They're having a meal. They're in the saloon. In the saloon, uh, Danny Glover comes in, and of course they gotta do the whole racist thing because mm-hmm. a lot of people probably were pretty racist uh, back then. Yeah. <laughs> Although a large percentage of cowboys actually were black, black and Mexican. Yeah, but this is. I know. Right. Not cowboys. So they give though, him a hard so. time. And I, I love how he says he was like, I'm just looking for a drink and a bed to sleep in. Yeah. Uh, no, he, he was wanting a beer and whiskey. Mm. So he hadn't drank in like 11 days or something like that. He hadn't had a whiskey. Uh, and yeah, this I think this is where we meet John Cleese the first time, actually. Yes. Because uh, <laughs> the guys are giving uh, Danny Glover and Mal a hard time. He kicks their ass. That's when the sheriff comes in. He's like, what's going on here? Uh, <laughs> Emmett kind of vouches for him, right? Emmett yeah. does vouch for him because he says, "Yeah, he was jumped." <laughs> and I, I love John Cleese here too; he's great. Uh, he has a line. What's the line? It's um, what's all this then? I think, which is something he would always say as this police officer character from Monty Python. Oh yeah, I thought it sounded familiar. Yeah. He doesn't deliver it quite the same way, right, right. but yeah, it's a nice nod. Um. Oh, God, I'm so he, bad and, at it. Well, Langston, the sheriff, John Cleese, tells him, Mal, Danny Glover, to get the hell out of town. Yep, right. Just go. Which is more set up for later. Yes. So he's like, fine, whatever. Has a so, shot of whiskey and he leaves. So Peyton's in jail, and we learn that Emmett's got this whole plan to spring his brother out. <laughs> yeah. And escape. It's a good plan. I love how it plays out because it's like it just kind of gets into night and then this kid kind of bursts in and is like, Sheriff, Sheriff, come quick, come quick. Mm-hmm. And there's a funny scene before that where you see Langston sitting at a chessboard and he's got one of his deputies across from him who looks very intently down on the board. Langston makes a move and then turns a chessboard around and he's playing himself. It's just a great little visual gag. Well, should we talk about Langston as a character for a second? Because it, it struck me weird because he's like British, right? Yes. But he, he's been appointed sheriff of yes. the town. Yes. And it's so so weird and so out of place in you a think? way. I think so. I don't know. He's an immigrant. America's built on immigrants. Not Quite literally away. in some cases. Not throwing away my shot, man. <laughs> it, just, it just seemed weird to me. Immigrants get the job done. Um, 
I actually, so not to be my typical, uh, yeah, to be my typical, historically it's not uncommon mm. because if he was well connected to someone and so if he came seeking fortune and he was well connected, most people didn't find fortune. He's just so over the top and so goofy. It just struck me weird. Well, and I think one of the things, so one of the things I read about this film and, and Kasdan when he was making the film was that he had it written, but so much of it changed once the casting came about. So like once he started acquiring actors that were willing to come and do the film, there were people that he loved and admired and wanted to work with. A lot of the script ended up kind of forming around those actors. I'm and, sure there was a lot of ad-libbing going and on. I think and you, I think one of the characters that you see that the most with is when we meet Jeff Goldblum's character later. Mm-hmm. He doesn't do shit. No. He didn't do shit in the movie. But it's I like... a lot of quibbles about his character. But it's like, there's Jeff Goldblum. He was in The Big Chill. You know, he'd already worked with Kasdan. Mm-hmm. He's very charismatic. He's Jeff Goldblum. Of course, put him in the movie. But he didn't give anything to do. So... And another setup thing. God, there's so much setup stuff in mm-hmm. this first little area. Oh, yeah. Um, there's like a wagon train that's heading out. Mm-hmm. Headed to Silverado. Headed to Silverado. There's some land out around there that they're going to settle... And there's this whole thing with these two characters that they're paying to be their guides. Yeah. Yeah. And they show them, they have this like chest of money. Mm-hmm. They're going to pay them later with. Yeah, because uh, Peyton and Emmett are mistaken mm-hmm. for part of this wagon train. So they're kind of around to see this transaction. You know, this guy's flashing all this money and shit like that. And that's a chest. typical Western trope, too, though. Well, yeah. Is that you mm-hmm. see, you know, they need protection, they need mm-hmm. somebody to guide them through. We're, we've scrounged up all the money we've got. And we paid it all to them, and they're going to double-cross us. It's also a, a well-worn and time-honored uh, D&D. Yeah, first-level adventure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and that pays off later, right? Yeah, this movie is like two hours long, and the first hour is all just like set up before they ever get to Silverado. Yeah. It's usually what a first act is. <laughs> set up. <laughs> I mean, the, the first act is almost like a film unto itself. <laughs> well, so when they spring uh, Jake. And Emmett, I love the scene. Emmett sets fire to the gallows. Yes. Yeah. But I love the scene of how they get out of the jail cell is that Peyton is standing there in this huge. He's got, the, he's got a big coat. Yeah, this yeah. huge coat that looks way too big on him. And the dude comes to get to get Jake out. The, the and he's, deputy. Yeah, he's, he's seemingly like, vanished. Yeah, he's like, where is he? I know he's in here. And you keep waiting because you've set it up that he's like climbing the ceiling. Mm-hmm. You keep waiting for him to drop down from the ceiling. Yeah. Um, but he ends up like trying to cuff Peyton through the, the bars so mm-hmm. he can't start shit. Because well, the cop thinks he's under the bed. And yeah. we also saw Jake getting under the bed earlier. It, yeah. Everything's a setup for this, for this gag. And then... Jake ends up being inside the coat yeah, with he's, Peyton. He's behind Peyton, yeah. <laughs> and reaches out and just punches the dude. <laughs> and it's just such a funny setup because it's not something that you were expecting to happen. But I don't know. That, yeah, to no, me, That's a great little moment. To me, it sets up the tone. I think it sets the whole tone of the movie. I think so, yeah. Because I struggled when I picked Silverado because it's not, it's not a badass Western. You know, like... It has moments mm-hmm. where there's some really badass characters that do badass things. Right, but it's, it's, a, it's not, a fun movie. Yeah, it's a kind of more of an adventure. Mm-hmm. Type, I, would, I would say adventure. Yeah, type it's film. Kind of what I would tag it as rather than like the typical gritty western mm-hmm. uh, that you'd be that would be associated with the time period. Um, so anyway, uh, they they go on the run, the three of them, and, and Langston's posse kind of sets out after them. 
Yes. Chase them down. So as Langston's chasing them, all of a sudden they get shot at. Mm. And it's by someone who is very accurate. Um, and one of the guys says something to Langston. They, they slow up because they're yeah. bombarded by this. <laughs> yeah, and it's like of, tree branches are getting shot. You know, rocks are getting shot and causing little avalanches and stuff like right. that or whatever. And one of the deputies to Langston says something like, well, he ain't hit a damn thing yet. Yeah. Langston <laughs> says he's hit everything he's wanted to. Yeah, he's hit everything he's aimed at. Yeah. And then the next scene you see... Um, his, his hat, hat go flying. goes flying off, <laughs> yeah. and he says, "This is where my jurisdiction ends today." You know, and turns around and realizes it's not worth whatever they're getting into. He tells the deputy to get his hat, <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out to be Mal. Yep, mm-hmm. um, who returning is, the favor. Yeah, who is returning the favor for them sticking up for him, and he's hiding up in the rocks. Mm-hmm. You know, whatnot. And they learn that they're all kind of headed to Silverado. Yep, right. To every each has different purposes mm-hmm. for going. Um, so they decide to ride together and we get the, the typical like classic Western where it's like the four of them riding oh, yeah. side by side and the music swelling, which we should say, uh, I think that this, I'm pretty sure this won an Oscar for best yeah, score. It did. So yeah, the music is pretty epic here. It's very, uh, very classical. Bruce Broughton. I think yeah, Bruce Broughton. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, along the way, this is where they come across that wagon train again. Yep. Yeah, we crash back into that plot line. And we learn... Oh, and the, that's, this movie is full of great actors. One of the wagon train leaders is Brian James. Mm, yeah. Who uh, you would know from Blade Runner. Oh, Leon. yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. There's so many people in this movie... The horror show. That, <laughs> that you see them and you're like, I know that guy. Yeah. I wonder what he's been in. But they don't make him main characters, so you're just like... Right. You see them for a scene and then they're gone. And Rosanna Arquette is part of this wagon train as well. She is. Um... That's when they find out that they've pretty much been double-crossed. Yeah, it turns out their guides uh, swindled those, them. Those fishy dudes we saw earlier were, in fact, fishy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, they were working for, kind of with another group, like a bigger group. Yeah, some, some bandits, you would some, say. Yeah, some bandits, some some bad hombres, I guess. I'm sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't have said it. I want, uh, I want an audio clip of just that. Bad hombres. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so being the good people that they are... Mm. Our heroes, our heroes decide to... We'll get that for you. We'll go back and get that chest of gold for you. But I'm sure there's also some, you know, selfish... It's not fully altruistic. Well, I, I think they're... The way this plays out, it's it's almost like a Looney Tunes skit in a way. But I, I love yeah, this Yeah, which scene. is why it's great. Because <laughs> it's really like... Emmett just kind of rides in there. Is it Emmett? I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Emmett, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. also, the husband of Rosanna Arquette goes with him because he doesn't trust them. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, rightfully so. Fair. They're, they're going to yeah. get the chest and just take off. Who, who says they're going to bring it back to us? But I, I, but I really... leave Jake behind. <laughs> and he has that great line where he says, well, if you don't come back, you can keep my brother. Yeah. <laughs> well, they, and they make jokes about, like... Um, that they wouldn't leave him with Rosanna Arquette, you mm-hmm. know, like a pretty woman like that, you wouldn't want to leave her side or whatever. Um, but I, I love this bit. You know that guy's dead, too. As soon as yeah. he gets on his horse and comes with him, <laughs> oh, he's fucking dead. Yeah. He may as well just kill himself right now. I love this gag because Emmett goes riding into this bandit camp. Like, they've already seen the camp. They mm-hmm. know what they're looking yeah, at. They, they scouted. It's kind of like area. in a little section beneath some, like, hills. Emmett goes running into this camp and riding. he's yeah, riding into this camp, dives off of his horse, like gets down. He's, he's like, he's got Peyton draped on the horse behind him. Yeah, he's like, everybody get down. They're, they're, they're after me. <laughs> they're coming. They're yeah. coming. And what, and there's a great uh, character actor who is leading this posse. It's James Gammon. Yeah. Um, mm. who 
I mean, you've how, seen him. You've seen him. In I don't know how many too. times I watched Major League growing up. Oh yeah, yeah. But he's the coach from Major League, mm-hmm. and he's just classic, dude. You know, <laughs> you've seen him in everything. But everybody's like looking around, like looking at, like what the hell. Like what? What is going yeah. on? But Emmett is just selling this thing it's so just they hard. Ro- they rob the bank and they got a posse coming at them, and the guy's like, "You brought a posse down here." And my favorite is when Emmett starts rattling off names. <laughs> yeah, and you, he's you like, know those fellas, you know those guys. And it eventually they're like, "I don't know any of those names." <laughs> so about this time is when um, Mal the, and Mal and uh, the husband start shooting. Start mm-hmm. shooting, and. Uh, they, it's very clear that it's just two guys. Yeah, the yeah. guys I think it's just a couple of guys. Yeah, up there. <laughs> but Emmett keeps selling this, and Emmett's like, "Y'all hang out. I'm gonna cover me. I'm gonna run." And I love that one dude. He was one of the guys who was leading the. I think he was one of the guys who was supposed to be leading the wagon train. Yeah, the one who actually mm-hmm. And he's like, man, he's a brave fella. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, Peyton is like tying a rope to the chest. The yeah. Right. Because conveniently, the horse is like stopped right uh-huh. by the wagon sure. it's on. Um, oh, shit. It's the first time. Damn. Um, but then it all plays out. You know, chaos ensues or whatever. And then they take off and right drag the chest. And, yeah. you know, classic train heist type type thing. I, I that scene was pointless to a from a like to a sense, but I loved it. It was just such a funny gag, mm-hmm. yeah. and I think it. But it also sets up the characters of like this is how they get through. You mm-hmm. know, they use their wits more than just like shooting everybody around and killing them to take come back and take it. Right, and that it demonstrates that they're good people. Yeah, you know. Um, no, I love that scene. And then the husband gets shot. Yeah, conveniently. <laughs> yeah and I, I read that a lot of Rosanna Arquette's scenes got cut but we don't even get a reaction no. <laughs> they don't like ride in with his body and she's like oh you know nothing nothing <laughs> said of this again well the way kind of what happens though with her is you get a different kind of reaction from her later mm-hmm. when um, I think it's Emmett right that comes up well, to her Peyton's courting her at first it seems like but yeah. then later on it's like her and Emmett and I, there's definitely some scenes I read there was more yeah. scenes that kind of focused on the Peyton relationship with her yeah they kind of there's like some out. love triangle that got cut out or something but they she ends up making a statement you know like that she wants to build something and make it grow and men don't like that she has ambition and mm-hmm. that they just want her to be pretty just be pretty and be for them and so for me, it kind of almost got implied that her husband was that way, and mm-hmm. she's like, "Well, good riddance." Yeah, maybe, maybe she's not so sad. <laughs> yeah, I kind of got that that impression from that. But yeah, uh, so yeah, they help the settlers get to where they're going, and our four heroes part ways to go about their business. Yes, and this is where we get like more backstory drops, kind of on every single character. Oh yeah, uh, the first is Emmett and Jake. They visit their sister, whose husband is the land agent in the area, right? Yes. And he tells them that there's a rancher, Ethan McKendrick, who's trying to maintain an open range and sort of like dominate all the territory and run everyone off. And it was this rancher whose father Emmett had killed and gone to prison before. Mm -hmm. Right. And it was a self-defense kill. Like, I don't remember the exact particulars of the story, but it wasn't like he was murdered. Emmett didn't murder him. And the link up back to the start is that the men that were trying to kill him in the shack were hired by McKendrick. Yes, we find that out later. Yes. McKendrick, that story... McKendrick's men and Cobb kind of got mishmashed to me. Mm-hmm. But I think they're supposed to, right? Yeah, they're well, working I mean, Cobb together. Was they're working, all, working for them. They're yeah. all working together. But 
some of it kind of got a little confusing for me at times. You know, like yeah, a little bit. There, it's murky. Yeah, it got murky. But then at the same time, if I stop and analyze it, I think well, maybe it was murky. I think it's just one of those things you just have to sit and, and wait and watch because it doesn't yeah. tell you a lot up front. You mm-hmm. just have to find things out as it goes. Yeah. Well, I ain't that smart. So yes, that's you are. <laughs> so that's our brothers. Mal goes to see his father. He was trying to see uh, him and his mother, but when he gets there, he learns that his mother's passed away. The house is burned down. The house is burned down. They're destitute. The land's overrun by cattle, which is linking back to the McKendrick plot. Because they want all this land for their big, massive herd of cattle. Which we're going to get again later. It's going to pay off pretty fun. And we learn that Mal's sister, Ray, has gone into Silverado, and she's taken up with like some gambler guy that's going around. Well, yeah, it's, it's implied that she went there to become a sex worker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which she has. And I think she's... They imply that she's um, risen to more of a prominent role. Like, almost more of a madam type. That's kind of what they imply, I think. But it doesn't really matter. So then, uh, Peyton actually goes into, like, Silverado proper. And that's where he finds this very nice saloon. Because there's an earlier line he throws away where he loves saloons, basically. Yeah, nothing like smell of a saloon. And so he finds. I'm sure that wasn't such a great smell. <laughs> he finds an awesome saloon. They've got all kinds of gambling going on. It's a sweet place. Uh, he meets the woman that runs it, Stella. Who, Stella, played by Linda Hunt, one of the best characters in the film. Oh, she's she's great. great. She's amazing. She's always good. Linda Hunt's fantastic in anything yeah. she does. Mm. They kind of hit it off. They're making friends, and then he learns that Cobb actually owns the place. Yep. And not only does he own the place, but he's also the sheriff of the town. Yep. So already, Payton is like. I think Peyton is ready just to settle down and not like cause trouble, but already he doesn't like the situation. Mm-hmm. He's asking for a job here, right? And Stella says that well, my you know co-owner over here kind of tied to him, <laughs> and but Cobb takes care of that later when he accuses that guy of stealing mm-hmm. and, and <laughs> pushes him, throws him, <laughs> fires him on the spot, pushes him out the the hotel, and uh, the the he comes back trying to kill Cobb and Cobb guns him down immediately yeah self-defense yeah um so that lends to payton being able to get a job working here at uh, the north star i think is what it's called morning star morning star morning star Morning Star. right um some of honestly i think some of the best dialogue in the entire film is between payton and stella mm-hmm. the relationship that they have is so they have great chemistry yeah yeah you, you can tell it's just two great actors just and I love it when we can when we can have like a man and a woman and it not be romantic, right? right. But they have right. like They're a lot just of chemistry friends. and have a friendship. Yeah. Um, there's it's so funny too. Like there's some great little gags too that they do because Linda Hunt is very short person, mm. um, and so she walks. He's standing <laughs> next to her in the saloon yeah, outside from behind the bar. Yeah. Um, but she walks behind the bar, and suddenly now she's eye to yeah. eye with him, and he leans over and it's sees like a this little ramp, ramp. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just such a great little gag. That's yeah. just I don't know. There's, oh yeah, there's little things about Silverado that are just like I don't know, little charming gems that are just planted yeah. in the story. That while when I rewatched this, I'm not sure that it's that I liked it as much as the first time I saw it, mm-hmm. but. It made me appreciate good writing, mm-hmm. and it made me miss seeing little things like this put into films now. Yeah, it says so much about her character. Yeah, it's know. and something's that simple. Mm-hmm. And um, but yeah, we'll carry on now. Um, also, while they're there, that's where we meet Slick, which is Jeff Goldblum's character. 
The gambler. Yes, and that's just after, what's his, Shorty, Linda Hunt's partner after he gets gunned down. He doesn't, he doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Slick comes right up, looks at the dead guy and says, hey, I'm here to gamble. Where's the saloon? Yeah. <laughs> he, he, feels, he feels so out of place. Like, it's, it's just Jeff Goldblum. He doesn't feel like he's blended well, in he's at all. He's got this, like, fur coat thing going. Yeah. And you, you could tell he's dressed, you know, extravagantly mm-hmm. for the time. And he... As much as I love Goldblum, and I seriously do, like I will watch anything the dude's in. I don't care how batshit crazy he is. Yeah, he's my batshit. Goldblum's crazy. great. Um, he just feels out of place here, though. Yeah. I I like his character, so I don't mind him being here, and he does at least perform a function. Mm. I just he, don't think they spend enough time on him that he's like a relevant player. In what's going he, on? I think he's just. He's ornamentation. He's one of the nice little things about this movie that just makes it a little bit more fun to watch. I love the scene yeah. where uh, Peyton is having a little face-off with Jeff Fahey, another great actor. Yeah. Because mm. um, they've got a history in there. Oh, yeah, right. It was uh, Jeff Fahey's character and Jake. They were about to throw down. Yes. Because mm. Jake was hanging out with uh, oh, Amanda yeah. Weiss from A Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> and he says, like, I just... Uh, I just kissed her or something like that. Yeah, right. And you see Jeff Goldblum reaching for that knife in his boot. Right. <laughs> Which gets delivered on. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. See so, that later. Uh, yeah. So I like his character. Is he superfluous? I don't think he's... A, he, he does perform some functions. And I, I, it's fun to see him. So I don't. that doesn't bother me one bit. Yep, so this is our status quo. And Cobb's kind of trying to push through McKendrick's dealings to take over all the land. Mm-hmm. And he's hoping that Payton will just get like focused on the saloon and kind of stay, right, stay out, out of the picture. He even tells him, just you know, stay out of it. And one of the nights, we even get like more of their backstory together finally. Because they keep mentioning this thing about a dog. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is where they finally tell the story, right? That they're, they did a job together and... I forget the whole dealing with they the ran, dog. They ran in a group together. It was like general outlaw stuff. Yeah. yeah. Some stray dog came up. He started feeding it. It followed him. And it got tangled up with uh, Jeff Fahey's character's horse. Mm-hmm. So he shot it. And but it didn't kill Tyree, the dog. That's his name, Tyree. Yeah. No. And Peyton stayed behind with the dog. And that's mm-hmm. what led to him getting arrested. Yes. Mm-hmm. and um, But then Peyton has a great line, too, and he said, yeah, and the dog got me out. <laughs> the dog yeah. struck me. Yeah. <laughs> and I love it when Denny, he's telling the story, and you see Peyton walking up behind him, mm-hmm. and you think it's going to be this, ooh, moment, you know, sore spot or whatever. But Denny, he doesn't even break in the story at all. He just keeps telling it. He looks back, sees Peyton, keeps telling the story. And yeah. you see, I Klein is so understated. Like, he... I think he plays this character so understated that nothing is over the top with him. And you really get the sense, like, you kind of think, like, Payton's going to make some other comment, you mm-hmm. know, and be like, that's not how it happened yeah, or whatever. Makes, makes a joke. But he, yeah, makes a joke because he's the bigger man and he knows it. Mm-hmm. He knows, like, okay, I'm just going to, whatever, whatever gets me through. Not going to cause trouble. Don't want to go back to jail. You know. And, and that ends up being his main storyline, you yeah. know, is like how far will he let his friends be pushed around before he stands up to say, no, 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 this isn't, mm-hmm. this isn't okay. So McKendrick's plans escalate and they, he sends some men to murder Ezra, uh, burn Emmett. 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 Yeah. Well, they murder Ezra, right? Mal's, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah Mal's dad. Mal's dad. I'm, my bad. Yes. Yeah. Ezra. Right. Cause he was going to go into town and 
Well, he's gonna try to like rally them to do something. I think. About yeah. Right. The, the them running over the land. That's right. Yes. But he never makes it because some of McKendrick's men intercept him and kill him. Jump him. Yeah. Which Mal finds. Ain't too happy about it. Not too happy. No. Uh, meanwhile, they kidnap Emmett's uh, younger nephew because they attack their house, right? They go and raid it. Mm-hmm. Then you find it. They just do a quick little scene to show like all the land titles mm-hmm. you know, on the shelf before they burn the house down. But yeah, Emmett's... And there are um, some development scenes they throw in there where they're kind of playing with the nephew. Oh, yeah, Right, sure. right. Yeah. And Emmett's already you shown... You can tell they like, care about the character a lot. Emmett's already shown up to in town like because um, the kid is on a horse. Yeah. And Emmett's already shown up in town and basically stares down McKendry's men. And it's like, uh, no. Yeah. And one of them's even like, Emmett, I didn't know you was out. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. clearly Emmett's a badass. And they know it and they don't want to cross him. But, yeah, when they end up going after his aunt's house, they're basically trying to burn land deeds and land mm-hmm. titles. And shit gets out of control there. They shoot. Uh, they also his... they jump Emmett at one point. Uh, this is a great scene where he's out practicing. Because yes. Emmett knows a fight's coming. Yeah. And he's got his rifle, and he's shooting at a cactus, and he's showing it from like his point of view, basically. And it's like you don't see the cactus getting hit, and you're like, "Wow, he's not very good with that rifle." And you get a close up of the cactus, and he's shooting off the individual the freaking needles, needles yeah. of the cactus. Great scene too, where it's he's working on his draw, you know, and he's shooting a can up in the air and everything. Yeah. But <laughs> the fun thing is, is I love this guy's delivery. The the the. Dude that jumps out, McKendrick's man, and says, "You're empty, Mister." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he has such a look on his face. He that dude is so happy to be there. But this is one of those other uh, times where Kazan subverts the typical Western trope. Is you would normally see the hero mm-hmm. practicing doing these things, and he's going to get to use them. Yep. You know, we're going to see him gun down somebody. You know, with a quick draw, but they just waited him out. And yeah, sure. and they showed up. They Ambush roped him. him. They run the horse over him. You know, um, Kasdan also did, um, which is one that I would love to choose, but it's a series. It's a mini series, so yeah. I can't choose it as a film. Um, Kasdan, uh, Kasdan also did um, Godless. Oh, I've heard of that, and I've never seen it. Which is, yeah. uh, I think it's a Netflix production. Which is probably yeah, that's probably it. why. Yeah. <laughs> Um, he does something very similar with a character in that, mm. where the kid's a quick draw, you know, and like so proud of how fast he can draw, mm-hmm. and he doesn't get to do it. Right. And he, yeah. it's a great scene. Um, honestly, I think that um, Godless is like Kazan learning everything he did from Silverado, and then like, let me write the best Western show that I can. Let's <laughs> check and that then, out. Had you really not seen I, I haven't seen it. Oh, dude, it's fucking great. Cool. All right. I'll um, take not to travel off topic too much, but no, dude, it's honestly anybody who's listening to this, like Godless on Netflix, fantastic show. Cool. All right. Awesome. Hey, like a limited series, so it's yeah. done. It's okay. it's one and done. Cool. It's like seven episodes, tells the story, it's over. Sweet. But fantastic. Um but anyway, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so Emmett gets pretty roughed up in this. And Mal saves him. Yep. Uh and this is also another There's another plot link up here too, where there was like a rifle that Ezra had, and then like the bandits took it. Yeah, one of the men have it. So Henry rifle, I think. Emmett got it at some point. He saw it on the uh, on the horse. Yeah, 
when they were in town and they found out that the horse had been branded with McKendrick's brand and yeah, it wasn't that's his That's how Emmett realized it was McKendrick's man that tried to kill him at the very beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Right, and I think that's where he gets the rifle yeah. from there. Because then Mal gets it back finally because he's like an excellent shot with it. Yeah. And it's also another trope that we see a lot in Westerns, especially the newer ones when Emmett is, he has to nurse himself back to health. Mm-hmm. You see that, almost it's almost in every Eastwood Western. Yeah. yeah. It started with, definitely with, um, uh, what was the first one? Help me out here. Uh, hang him high. No, no, no. The first spaghetti western. He was oh, doing. what the Fist hell? Is wrong? Fist, thank you. Fistful of dollars because he gets fucked up in that one. Mm-hmm. And it's always like he has to get beaten down, then he has to raise up, and he's getting even stronger. Right. So we get that trope here too with him. Um. Yeah. So meanwhile, though, back in Silverado, there's a lot of meanwhiles. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Cobb has gone to Payton because he knows all this is about to pop off. Mm-hmm. And he kind of not so indirectly suggests that if he happens to get involved at all, something bad will happen to Stella. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of uses that to lock him out of the conflict. Right. It's, um, cause he knows, he knows, right he knows his personality. Yeah. So he knows that he'll never like risk an innocent person like that. Yeah. And that's like, we'd already talked about that. There's not a romantic relationship, but there's such a good friendship with them mm-hmm. that I almost would have, I buy it more. Yeah. That he's not going to let anything happen to his friend than if it were a love interest. Yeah. You know, like it's it's played better. Um, but she eventually just confronts him about it. Yeah, yeah. There's a great scene of the two of them stocking in the back of stocking whiskey. or They're like pouring whiskey bottles out of a, um, a keg of yeah. whiskey. And there's a great scene where it's like they're basically pouring rocket whiskey. And I think they're watering it down yeah. too. Um Payton sees this bottle and he's like, what's that? And she's like, that's the good stuff. And they look at each other and they're like, to the good stuff, you know, and <laughs> it's stuff. just a great little moment, mm-hmm. character building moment between the two of them. And so you see them drinking the good stuff together, you know, which I think is another fun little drop, you know, that we see that scene. And now they're sitting around the table. Payton finds out essentially that. Isn't it Mal comes to get him? I think. I don't remember if Mal came to get him. Maybe it's just Stella asked him to go, I think. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. They know that everybody's in trouble. Because mm-hmm. um, I think they'd taken Jake at this point, right? right? Yeah. There's a lot of ins and outs. And it's almost impossible to go through every little point. They've taken... I, at one point, they kidnapped Jake. And they also kidnapped Augie, the little well, I little do know boy. one thing. Mal has met with his sister at this point. Oh, and he's yeah. kind of tried to like dissuade her from hanging out with Slick. <laughs> right. But she like wants nothing to do with him at this point. Uh-huh. Um, but... Peyton knows that all this shit's going down with his friends, and now he's stuck because he either has to make the decision to try to protect Stella or go to the aid of his friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do love the scene. It's kind of cheesy, but I love it when Peyton realize when he decides to do it uh, because you see this really funny scene where Mal. Um, has both of his rifles. Yeah. <laughs> he's like got bandoliers around him. And uh, Emmett's like, do you want one of these guns, one of these pistols or whatever? And and uh, Mal's like, no, these will do. Yeah, and it's like I got full, what I need. Full yeah. Rambo moment. Um, but they go, they basically do their, let's ride into town. Well, they, they go to raid uh, McKendrick's ranch. Right, right. And That's they, where and they the big ra- cattle herd. Yeah, they rally up the cattle into a stampede to just tear through there. But when they're riding... It's cheesy, but when Peyton just rides up and joins them, mm-hmm. and they just all share a look, it's a little cheesy, but I like it's it. Great. It's you the know? perfect amount of cheese. I like it. But yeah, when they go to raid... Um, this is where the action really kicks up. Yeah, because so far, there really hasn't been 
There's just been little. There's been little bits of here and little, there. Little hits here and but there. But not a ton of action. Um, so McKendrick knows they're coming, mm-hmm. essentially. So he's got dudes posted everywhere, like yeah. to keep an eye out or whatever. And so uh, you just see the stampede of cattle come over <laughs> the hill. A dude. That's another dude who gets to deliver a great line and does it very well. <laughs> Stampede! <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so the cattle rip through everything. Uh, but meanwhile, they're riding with the cattle, essentially, mm-hmm. and taking pot shots and like picking off his men. During the commotion, Mal is snuck up onto a roof. Mm-hmm. Um, he's picking guys off left and right. They're really... It's a really well-crafted scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not entirely sure. I'd love to see how they managed to pull that off. Because with that, like, working with that many cattle, like, trying oh, have, to get them to do that. I have a note about this. Oh, nice. um, their livestock coordinator was Corky Randall, and he had a wrangling team. And they were responsible for more than 100 horses, 500 cattle, pigs, chickens, and other assorted animals. All brought in to make this sort of realistic atmosphere. That's insane, man. That yeah. is insane. The fact that they were able to coordinate all of that into this giant action scene. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, uh, it kind of plays out like any other shootout type thing. Any but, western you've seen, you've seen this kind of shootout. Yeah, one of the, my favorite scenes though from it is uh, there's a dude who tries to get the jump on Mal, and he climbs up on the roof behind him, and he's trying to like sneak up. Mm, yeah, Payton sees him and he's trying to get Mal's attention, <laughs> but everybody's like, "There's so much gunfire!" And finally, Payton decides that the best way to do it is he shoots the building right next to Mal's head. Yeah, Mal swings around to shoot him, and Payton's like, over "Dude, there. over there!" <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then Mal, of course, takes him out. But so, in result of this, they rescue their nephew, mm. but McKendrick escapes and races back to Silverado. Of course. Uh, the nephew thinks that Jake is dead because mm. Jake tried to escape and said Jake fell off his horse. Well, Emmett knows Jake never falls off his horse. We've seen him do some trick riding mm-hmm. already, like through the film, like hanging off the saddle and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then they do come across uh, Jake in the barn hiding out during the gunfight and everything. Yep. So, um, And that sets up our final confrontation. Yep. Yeah. Uh, let's see who kills who. So uh, the, the Tyree killed yep. Jake. Tyree is killed by Jake, and he has a cool, uh, cool scene where he's being stalked by those two men at the saloon. Yeah, and he backs out of it, and they're like on either side of him, and he draws both of his guns at the same time, shoots in different directions. We've seen him do like lots of yeah. fun, swift like gunslinging stuff already that he never gets to use. So you finally get a payoff with it. Yeah. Uh, Mal rescues his sister from Slick because he was in, a, in on things with Cobb and McKendrick. Yep. Um, it's one of the weirdest kills, I think, because earlier in the film, what Slick comes there to get Stella, I think, and Ray tries to help. And then she gets stabbed, and she's like kind of injured, but she's going to be okay. She got shot, yeah. Uh, yeah, she got shot, yeah. But she's going to be fine. And then Mal gets this knife and kind of just stabs Slick once in the stomach, and then he just like folds and collapses. I mean, we think of D&D like when you roll up a character and you've got like one hit point out of the gate. <laughs> but I do like that scene because you see 
um, slick earlier when he reaches for that knife in his boot, you know it's there. You remember right. it's there. Mm-hmm. And Kasdan writes it well enough that you know that you're expecting him to reach for that knife. Yeah. Because he's got this fun little two-shot Derringer that pops out of his coat all the time. Yeah. Um, he gets those two shots done, so he knows that his gun's out. Mm-hmm. But like as a viewer, we're like, the knife, the yeah, knife, the, the knife. knife. And you think he might stab him. But then it's the way they deliver, and Mal's like, "You looking for this?" Yeah, and like stabs him. <laughs> it's just a fun little payoff because um, you know it's that we know yeah. it's there, right? Uh, Emmett and McKendrick face off on horseback, and they kind of subvert like what this showdown would be if you just assume the typical Western plot. Because Emmett ends up dropping his gun, yeah, puts him at a huge disadvantage, but he manages to kind of like guide his horse, and he it kicks McKendrick in the head and just instantly kills him. <laughs> It's one of the most brutal kills in the yeah, film, I think. Yeah, it's, it's good. Uh, then we have the final showdown between Payton and Cobb. Mm-hmm. Which and this is they try to do the whole... That's like, your typical high noon mm-hmm. gun draw. They've even got the tumbleweeds yeah. rolling through. It's very classic, and Payton promptly takes care of Cobb. Which if I, I have any... One of, my, one of my complaints is that scene. It's just a little too... It doesn't have the... It happens exactly how you think it's going to yeah, happen. Yeah. It's too on the nose for and me. And there's none yeah. of the, like, the build-up or the atmosphere. Yeah, right. That's the only part that really falls flat for me. I do like how it starts where Cobb's just like sitting on like the front porch of the sheriff yeah. station. Yeah. And then he's kind of just like, whoop, and stands up and walks out. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do this. But then once they square off, I don't know, there was something about it that just didn't like resonate right for me. Yeah. It feel, to me, it felt like, well, we haven't done a traditional shootout. Yeah in a Western and we need to stick one in. And this mm-hmm. is, but like you never got anything with Payton to make you to really build up like, Oh, Payton's a great gunfighter. Yeah. You don't really get a lot of that. Like you see, yeah, I'm take some cool shots or whatever, but mm-hmm. not like that. You would almost expect that more from Emmett, mm-hmm. you know, cause we see Emmett. We, we, we had that one his. scene where he shoots the guy off his own, off his horse with that crappy gun. Yeah. yeah. So we know he's capable. But yeah, it just it, it was a little off. Yeah, it could have been a little bit more there at that point. So um, they, they saved the day. They've liberated Silverado. Uh, it kind of skips ahead a bit, and everyone's saying their goodbyes and going to part their separate ways again. Um, was it Emmett and Jake are going to head out to California? Yep, they're going to California. I'm going to find a place there. Peyton stays. He's working at the saloon. But he's also got another he's job. the sheriff now. Yeah, There's yeah, a sheriff. new sheriff in town. And Mal and his sister reunite, and they're going to go back to the homestead and rebuild it and kind of actually achieve what their parents hoped it would be. Right. There is one uh, one line I forgot from earlier when they're around there. When they all, the four heroes get together and they're kind of all around the campfire, and you learn that Mal is from Chicago. Mm. And uh, there's <laughs> Jake delivers this line. He's like, was it wonderful? Yeah. <laughs> wow. And uh, Mal's like, no. <laughs> it's awful. It's awful. That, that scene always made, that made me yeah. laugh. Is it wonderful? Such a good performance. <laughs> yeah, and that's pretty much the movie. Yep. So there's, that one, there's that one line that, that Jake has when, when they're writing out. He turns back to everyone and he says, we'll be back. <laughs> like, is there going to be a sequel? It, maybe. Yeah, it maybe like they're sitting it Yeah, it really does. Um, and also they kind of resolve this little like love triangle thing with Hannah. Uh, which is awkward that's, because that's another complaint I had because yeah. it's not there. The, mm-hmm. the scenes were cut and it's just not there. It's, it's earlier before the final fight, Emmett and Peyton kind of talk about it and Peyton's like giving up on her and he kind of like suggests Emmett to like, well, yeah. if you like her, go for it. And we never even got any scenes with them before. Did <laughs> no. we? There's like maybe one when they first like saved their yeah. wagon train. 
Yeah, that was a bit. But man, then Emmett whatever. decides that he's going to go on and go to California, and she kind of mentions something about like she'll still be there waiting if he yeah. comes back, and yeah. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't. So, Dustin, you've got some issues. I do, but I want to talk about uh, some other little bits. About yeah, the yeah, a little trivia here. Um, we should talk about Kevin Costner, because he went on to star in a bunch of other westerns, like Wyatt Earp in 94, Open uh, Range. Also and, by uh, Caston. Yep, yep, true. Uh, Open Range in 2003, and then, of course, in 1990, he did Dances with Wolves, which he won, uh, that won a Best Picture Oscar. You know something? I've never seen that movie. It's excellent. Okay. I watched it a long time ago as a kid. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be, and I'd like to watch it again now. As well, to me, it out. sounds like it rips off Avatar, so I don't know if I want to watch it. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, um, one one person I thought was worth mentioning as far as like the production was uh, Christy Zia. She had a staff of four, and they handled all the costuming for the film. So in total, there was a cast of 54... Principles. Central oh. central principal characters and 500 extras. <laughs> and they had to costume all of them for this film. Four people, jeez. And uh, I had a note that uh, they did extensive research and had a lot of conferences with Kasdan to like give each character like a distinctive silhouette so that if you saw like each of the four leads like outlined, each one of them was different in some way. And it wasn't just like any one of them was equal to one of the others. That's true. So I thought that was a nice like little thing mm-hmm. that they do have these four characters and they are each like distinct Absolutely. Um, let's see what else was fun things. Um, Cook Ranch was the site where they made like the Silverado set. It's uh, 25 miles out of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, that was also a huge, like, overwhelming task because they had to make like 40 buildings. I think they said in all to yeah. lay out the town. Um, Those were used later on, right? Lots of other yes, movies. Yes, they were. Yeah. Been easier if they just did cutouts oh. in the town. So that set was built for <laughs> this movie. <laughs> uh, it was built for this movie, but since it's been used in Young Guns in '88, Wyatt Earp in '94, which is funny because that yeah, back to it's like well, let's just use this again. Uh, Last Man Standing in '96, Lonesome Dove in '89. Uh, Pretty Horses in 2000 and Wild Wild West in 99. Oh, wow. Which also has a crappy movie. Kevin Klein in it. Yes. It's like somebody saw uh, Silverado and they were like, oh, Kevin Klein in a Western. Let's put him in, like, on paper. Sure, that sounds good. <laughs> which, uh, just to throw it out there, also in the Wild Wild West, um, one of the buildings at that point, they they have like a sign on it and it says the Kasdan Ironworks. Yeah. And they put that in the film in reference to That's cool. Kasdan. Nice. So I did come across a trivia that I didn't that I don't remember from the film, but now if you guys if anybody watches this, like if you haven't watched it beforehand and you listen to us talk about it and you still want to watch it somehow, um, <laughs> there is a scene What's wrong with you people? <laughs> there is a scene where Augie tries to jump onto Jake's horse. Mm-hmm. Um, pays off and uh, but he misses Mm -hmm. but apparently the horse is wearing Jake's hat yeah he's leading him on and the hat is on the horse and I don't remember that really no I somehow you don't remember the hat on the horse I just I think I just overlooked it but apparently that's something Kevin Costner did um like he thought that Jake would do something stupid he like totally that, would do that and put it on there. So he just did it right before the camera started. Yeah. And Kazan was like, what the fuck? Okay. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Leave it in. It's great. He would totally do that. I, yeah. I didn't, 
I somehow don't How remember that. How did you miss that. the hat on the horse? Know. I think Are you I... paying attention to these movies? <laughs> Most Listen, of... You didn't know the plot. You missed that. Uh, you didn't fall asleep on, during it. Though, no, right? I didn't fall asleep. <laughs> Most of the time I have to watch these movies, though, like with my kid in my lap. Okay, one day that's not going to be an excuse anymore. No. So. <laughs> then I, then I you guys are that we just, make it to that day. You all are just going to realize how ADHD I actually am. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm watching a movie currently. Whoops. <laughs> Um, my last little set thing, uh, the Midnight Star Saloon was purchased in 2001, and it got moved to Melody Ranch Studio in California, and it's set up there now as part of like a western town oh. that you can like go and pay to see all the sets and stuff. That's cool. Because actually, it was the first time that Tiffany and I went on vacation out west. We went to a little place like that where they had like western sets that had been used in films. That's pretty neat. I and would it was do neat that. to just like it was like a weird like faux constructed western town of hmm. just like. This is from this movie. Like they each had a plaque on them. It was really cool. Did they have anything from Blazing Saddles? It was nothing too big. It was like oh. their biggest thing was like one of the lesser Clint Eastwood movies. They had like a few buildings from. Uh, but it was fun. Like this is all we could afford. <laughs> it was a neat experience. Yeah. Remember the outhouse from Hang 'Em High? It's right here. Uh, so yeah. yeah, that's all my fun notes I have about the film. Cool. Well, who wants to go first with uh, final thoughts? I'll start. Get it out of the way. It's obviously my pick. Mm -hmm. I do think this is underseen. Um, even though it did well, I think that it's it gets lost because it's not the typical type of Western that people tend to love. It's mm -hmm. not a Clint Eastwood Western, which is what everybody will always talk about. Um, it doesn't have that same gritty atmosphere. It doesn't have... It's not ultra-violent. Mm -hmm. You know, it's more of an adventure film. And... But a Western. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Like, I don't think you can misconstrue this. This is a Western. Um, I think it's fun, and that's exactly why I like it. Mm -hmm. It's because, to me, it's just a fun movie that's got a great cast. Uh, some great lines in it, too. You know, like a lot of memorable lines. Mal's, uh, now I don't want to kill you, and you don't want to be dead. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one. such fun lines throughout the film. Mm -hmm. Do I think it's perfect? No. Um Rewatching it, I think I'm gonna go with like three point seven five because I want to seven five. I want to be at four. You can't do that. I used to think I really want to be at four. I really do. Mm -hmm. So you're three point five, but I think I have to be three point five. <laughs> okay, but I don't think that that means it's not good because I still have a ton of fun watching it. Well, that's above average. Yeah, it's well I mean, it's average. way above Jason's average. Um, I still have a ton of fun watching it. I think there's fantastic performances. It's so much fun. Will I sit and watch it as much as I do Outlaw Josie Wales? No. Mm. But they're just different kind of movies. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, even though I brought it, I still say 3.5. <laughs> okay. Well, not every pick has to be like, you know, your favorite movie. Yeah. I think it. But this, I mean, you're right. This is a great example of what a classic kind of western and if we're gonna be talking about westerns for a while i thought it was a good one to start on definitely yeah, that makes me feel better because if you want to say yeah. like what's a western like this film is definitely a western yeah no one could ever misconstrue that well do you want to give your thoughts because i have a feeling yours are more negative than mine also. yeah because i should preface like for me and my interest in westerns as a genre like i love spaghetti westerns i love acid westerns anything that's like gritty that that revisionist idea where they kind of have like the grittier look the the darker tone that's like everything to me as far as what I enjoy. Uh -huh. And the, these classic Westerns, I know they're, they're like well done, they're well executed, but I've never seen many that have ever appealed to me too much. Okay. And so this film, like, 
It definitely has its merits. There's a great cast. They all do amazing work in their roles. Every mm-hmm. character is like well, well formed, well realized. Sure. Um, all the stuff that I took notes on were things I thought were impressive about the film, the set design, the costuming, that they were able to actually manage all these animals. Uh, we didn't talk about it on air, but I told you, Jason, I just watched uh, the green Knight finally. And I was just like the fucking Fox, man, the CG Fox, <laughs> all it does is like walk and follow him. And they couldn't find one tame Fox that they could shoot for that. <laughs> yeah. Like what the hell? Right. But then you go to the film like Silverado and like, hundreds of animals and they've all got it orchestrated right for the shots. 80s man fucking yeah. 80s um it feels like to me like they go out of their way to hit every mainline western trope along the way and sometimes they don't always execute those well enough and it's like they're just there to be there like what you were saying with the duel at the end yeah they really could have like tuned that up more and it would have hit harder for me but it's like what's well, just here because like oh you know we got to have the duel and there's like this veneer of like I hate to say hokiness because that feels like I'm insulting it, but like this family friendly like veneer to it that's on there. Is there something wrong with that? Um, it's just kind of unappealing to me. That's um, like I fucking hate family friendly shit. Not always, but you know, <laughs> uh, in the context of like a Western, if it's it, weird in Japanese. It doesn't appeal friendly. to me as much. There's no um, tentacles coming out of that. <laughs> so a lot of it to me, like it felt like this was people in the eighties nostalgic for that golden age of the thirties to the fifties Westerns. And they were just trying to like do that on a big level with the budget to do something impressive and like pay homage and love back to that. Sure. Just like Raiders did with the old uh, serials and stuff. But for me, that's all stuff that I don't love. So to me, it's like one of those, it's like how I'm critical of stranger things where Mm -hmm. yes, it's nostalgic to all the things I love, but it's in a way that's like unappealing to me. Yeah. Very synthetic and forced. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I thought to the length, like it's, about two hours, it's I believe. It's a bit long. Yeah. It's like two ten. I'll say that. It's a bit long. And like the first half is all the setup and them meeting, and then they get to Silverado, and then immediately they split them up to then do like a subplot for each person. And I mean, you'll probably notice listening to this episode going through, there's so much to the plot and so many things yeah. happen. And it's really, even for two hours, so much is crammed in, but it's like, it never flowed in a way to me that it felt like I was easily pulled through everything. It was just like, I kept looking at the time and I was like, wow, we're, we're doing this now? And even at the halfway point, I was like, dude, we're not at Silverado yet. This is, this <laughs> what are we going to get to the know? fireworks factory? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, it has its merits. It has its good points. It didn't appeal to me a ton. I wasn't super happy with it, but it is what it is. I would give it like a two star. Okay. <laughs> I do think it's worth seeing. I do think it has a lot of merits to it. You are a harsh son of a bitch. You know that? But if I'm honest, I would never watch it again. <laughs> Okay. I love it. Here's my take. You hate long films. I don't like bad long films. I also love how much I also love how much Jason will argue with you. Yeah. It's so much fun. It's my favorite part. Because I don't argue with anybody about anything. What's the point if you're not arguing? All in good fun. Good oh, fun yeah, yeah. arguing. Not like you're stupid. That's why I don't argue. Uh, Jason, I'm I think afraid anyone that say... would like this movie is just stupid and dumb, <laughs> and they're just a waste of life. So <laughs> I don't argue because I'm afraid my, it's going to end up with me being like, "Yeah, well, fuck you, and fuck your mom." <laughs> Jason, what did you think of the film? Uh, I love it. I think it's a great movie. It is a perfect Sunday afternoon movie. It's a perfect dad movie. You know, this is the sort of thing I watched with my dad back in the day. Yeah. This was a VHS rental for us a few times. Um, it's not perfect. No. It is overlong. I think they probably could have just cut out the whole 
Rosanna Arquette stuff. All the rancher stuff. Well, really. they tried. That, that does, that, <laughs> well, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really affect the plot. No. She doesn't wind up with anyone. We don't really find out anything more about the characters with her scenes in it. And you don't even really need them for the McKendrick plot because that's already going with like Mal's family. Yeah. Yeah. It was enough for me to see them get the treasure chest for them. You know, cool. You know, they're good people. They, they can handle themselves. They're working together as a group. Awesome. We didn't need the rest of it with the settlers. Um, and the final shootout, that could have been a little bit better, you know. Uh, but, I mean, those complaints aside, I don't really have any others. And this movie also somehow led to one of my favorite comedies of all time. Because John Cleese was really impressed with Kevin Klein And thought about him when he was writing oh, uh, Fish Called Wanda. Wanda. God, it's so fucking good. <laughs> which Klein would get his freaking Oscar for. I've never actually seen that. You have not seen no. A Fish Called Wanda. It's It's great. Okay, we're going to do British comedies <laughs> as a block, and I'll do Fish Cut One to make him watch it. Uh, I love that movie so much. So, I think, yeah, I would give it four stars. Mm. I think it's a fun movie. It's an old-fashioned kind of movie. It's that perfect 80s film where it's fun, but still well-made and smart. Yeah. You know, and you just don't really see that that much anymore with mainstream films, in my opinion. I agree. There's not as okay. There is few and well, smart movies are starting to be fewer and far between. <laughs> uh. <laughs> okay, so that's the first one. Jason, what's next in order? Okay, well, I'm going to roll the dice and submit something I haven't watched yet. Uh oh. But has been on my radar, and I think this would be something interesting for us to all watch together. I don't know if you all have watched it or not. From 2016, called Brimstone. Never heard of it. Uh, I don't think I've watched it. Um, it, is, it has Guy Pearce in it. has Dakota Fanning in it. has ah. Kit Harington and Carrie Span Houghton in it. Interesting. Ooh, who are both in Game of Thrones. Um, I will give you the synopsis here. In the menacing inferno of the old North American West, Liz is a genuine survive, survivor who is hunted by a vengeful preacher for a crime she didn't commit. Mm-hmm. I, I, know, I don't know very much about this. It's just it's been on several lists of like underseen movies and westerns in particular. And if we want to check this out, where would we? Watch uh, it? It's on Fubo. The fuck is Fubo? I don't <laughs> I was know. About to say where the fuck is Fubo? <laughs> I don't I've know. seen uh, this. I've seen this cover before. Yes, yeah. the cover does it's not. It's a cool poster though. Uh, if it's the same one we're looking at, it's like a cross. And, no, I'm uh, looking at the one with uh, Kit Harrington. It's oh, like a it's three, generic face. The generic faces. floating heads. Yeah. Yeah. Now this one's much better. Here's, That's probably the red box poster. Here's a poster. Look at that one. Oh no, that one's cooler. Yeah. It's all right. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's on Showtime. If you have that, you can rent it on Apple TV. Uh, Amazon, you can rent it for four bucks. Oh, it's on Tubi. Here you go. It's on Tubi. Oh, okay. Tubi, the great savior. Saved by Tubi. Now, it's a long movie, so if you watch it on Tubi, it's going to be even longer because of the ads. And it might break up the momentum. How long is it? It's two and a half hours. Jesus, Jason. I am challenging myself with a long movie (laughs) and one I haven't seen. Interesting, interesting. This should be a a curious continuation of our thing. Yeah. Okay. Next time, Brimstone. Okay. As always, thank you guys so much for everything that you do thank you for commenting thank you for sharing um please continue to send us recommendations we're compiling a list we will get to them as we can i promise we'll filter them in between every block of theme if you're worried that we won't get to your movie 
before one of us dies, don't worry, we're all in pretty good health. So <laughs> we'll probably make it. Um, yeah, continue to send us comments, email, all that shit, whatever you want to do. We love it. Yep, we love it. it. It makes our day. We send little text messages back and forth like, hey, did, did <laughs> you see somebody happy. commented? And we're like, oh, yeah, that makes me happy. Okay, but until next time, you've been listening to Genre Exposure. Bye, everyone. Take care. You're listening to the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal, providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening.